You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. In our exploration of shared decision making, we now move to a vision for the future and what the barriers are to getting there. I'm delighted to introduce Angela Coulter, Director of Global Initiatives at the Foundation for Informed Medical Decision Making, based in Oxford. Hello, Angela. Hello. Glyn Elwin, who leads a research group on shared decision making at Cardiff University. Hello, Glyn. Hello. Alf Collins, who is consultant in pain medication working within the NHS and has written a recent King's Fund review looking at shared decision making. Hello, Alf. Hello. Margaret McCartney, who is a GP and writer based in Glasgow. Hello, Margaret. Hi. And Anu Deer, who is a junior surgical trainee working in the NHS. Hello, Anu. Hello. Angela Coulter, we've just been discussing current UK and US policy initiatives to give patients a much greater say in decisions about their own health care and in how services are delivered. But do these go far enough or do we need to change the philosophy and culture, especially given the asymmetry in information and the power asymmetry between doctors and patients? Yeah, I mean, in this country, we're very good at um, wonderful sounding policy statements, but actually making them real is is um, more of a challenge. I think we do need a, a very different approach. Um, it, it's got to be an approach that um, encourages clinicians and patients to see themselves as working together to improve health rather than one of them doing things to the other. Um, when you ask clinicians about this, they often say, well, this is obvious, we do it already. Um, and yet when you ask patients whether they feel involved, they on the whole say, no, they don't. Um, when you check whether they understand um, uh, information about their treatment, about their treatment options and so on, on the whole, they don't, they don't have that knowledge. Um, clinicians often also say, well, it's all very well, I'd like to do it, but I don't have time. Um, and sometimes they say, my patients don't want it. Um, the time issue is tricky because we know that everybody works in uh, under huge time pressures. But um, an, a different way of thinking about how time is used, much better use of teams. Um, so with other members, that, for example, GPs don't have to do all of this. Uh, the nurses and other people who work in the practice can help and have a big role. Um, patients themselves can do an awful lot. Um, and thinking about time across a pathway rather than single episodes, um, you can see how actually a lot of time could be saved if um, patients were encouraged to, to be more active. Um, the, the, the assumption that my patients don't want it, uh, which is often said, um, or people say, well, this is a very middle class concern and in fact it's not of interest to people from... Um, uh, you know, with less education or from disadvantaged groups, also turns out to be wrong. And in fact, it's very much those people have the most to gain. Um, so we need strategies for tackling health literacy. We need strategies for improving public awareness of health and, and illness issues. Um, but above all, we need this philosophical change at the level of the clinic at the consultation. Alf Collins, you're involved in the Health Foundation's programme where patients with long-term conditions are actually training doctors. Can you tell us a bit about that? The, the, the programme's called Co-Creating Health. We've been running for um, four years now, and it's working across eight health communities in the UK, working with people with four different long-term conditions, diabetes, COPD, um, depression and long-term pain. Um, and 
there's a whole series of interventions that, that, that go together to support people to manage their own health. That's the aim of the programme. One is self-management programmes for people who live with long-term conditions. Another one is actually quite a big system change programme, just as Angela's talked about. What we found in our programme is actually changing the system, changing the system, such that those enabling conversations can take place at every point in a pathway is incredibly important. And in order for clinicians to know how to host, how to be in an enabling conversation, um, the, the training for clinicians, and we've trained nearly 700 clinicians now, is delivered by clinicians and people with long-term conditions working together. And it's just incredibly powerful to see someone with a long-term condition training a clinician in how to speak with them to enable them to manage their own health. And how do you evaluate the success of such a scheme? I mean, we've got a, we've got a, a £1 million evaluation programme going on. Our primary end point is this, um, this, this, this thing called patient activation, which Judy Hibbert has, has looked into in great detail. Patient activation measure is a measure of people's knowledge, skills and confidence to manage their own health and health care. It's a 22 or a 14, now a six-item measure, um, that actually tends to predict a whole heap of other outcomes. So it tends to predict clinical outcomes. It tends to predict quality of life. It tends to predict levels of anxiety and depression. It tends to predict healthcare utilisation. So the PAM, the patient activation measure, is our core primary outcome measure. And I wish I could tell you what the results are, um, but we're about six months from having the, the full evaluation out. And what about the impact on the clinicians? How can you evaluate that? You, you know, um, we've evaluated that in terms of stories. We've, we're, we're just about now to go into a second phase of the programme where we're, we're developing a tool to really understand whether it actually makes clinicians feel as though they've had a more productive conversation themselves. You know, We're a little way into that and I can't tell you more. But the stories we've had from clinicians are amazing. You know, This has transformed my practice. This has transformed the way I think about my work. This has transformed the way I think about the relations I have with people who live with long-term conditions. It's transformative. Margaret McCartney, you're a GP in Glasgow. Is this anything more than an ivory tower academic ideal? Do, do patients want this level of engagement in your experience? And is it possible, given that a lot of what else doctors have to do takes up all their time? Sure. I mean, uh, the Salzburg statement, I mean, there's nothing you could disagree in it. The, the idea that as a doctor I would try and sort of cajole or persuade or not inform is just abhorrent. You know, I mean, of course um, patients should be, you know, equally contributing towards a consultation and uh, to, to have the outcomes. I mean, there is absolutely no way that I would want my patient to be anything other than well informed. The question is um, when it's appropriate and what best to do. Sometimes it's not appropriate to offer a huge range of choice if I think I have someone with meningitis or acute appendicitis it's really not appropriate for me to spend half an hour with some decision aid trying to work out what best to do for them. The real place where we should be looking at proper informed decision making is not in patients who are sick but in patients who are well. We do very badly in the NHS in terms of not giving people proper choice about things like for example cervical screening. It's impossible to opt out. You'll get red letters if you dare to say that you'd rather not have this. Thank you. 
Mammography, which is still not offered as a choice, is offered very much as something that you should have for the good of your health and really that it's not a terribly good idea to dissent from that. Um, Cholesterols and blood pressures seem to be automatic indicators that you're entering into your middle age rather than something that you should actually sit down and make a decision about. So um, I I absolutely think that people should have good information about decisions they make. How could I possibly argue otherwise? But the real question is what we do for people who are essentially well. We make them into patients, we cause a huge amount of chaos in their lives, we add to their anxiety, we add to their concern about themselves without actually making them into a proper participant and equal, intelligent, capable person able to make a decision for themselves. Anu dear, you're a junior doctor working in secondary care in the NHS uh, and with all the complexity and specialisation and the involvement of teams with different doctors seeing patients sort of every eight hours and is it possible to share patients' decisions with everyone and really understand their priorities? I think one of the most important points is um, it's very specific to certain situations. I think um, it's easy for us to say that we have a statement that that uh, is all-encompassing, but it's very you have to decipher that for particular situations. So if I'm thinking about a situation where I'm on the ward um, and there is a time pressure and there is um, uh, a number of other things that need doing, it may not be appropriate in that situation um, simply because of workforce planning. There might not be enough time, there might not be people to take on that role. Um, if you're, however, in the outpatient setting, that's a totally different story, and it may well be more appropriate then. So I think you have to, you have to be very careful about what you apply this to. Um, I think it can be applied to everything. I think the conditions of each of those are different, though. Thank you. And Glyn Elwin, in your research based at Cardiff, do you, do you have a sense of how one might address those more real-world concerns that, that Margaret and Anu have mentioned is there an evidence base to sort of support a way forward there? I think um, picking up Margaret's points of not appropriate in some situations, and in a way, completely agree. Um, I think when you would advocate a, um, a strong participation where there are reasonable competing options, um, a sense of equipoise that actually is very reasonable here to consider the harms and the benefits uh, together. There are many situations where urgency or the treatment is so effective that you would probably go ahead and do it. But even then, you need to respect autonomy, I guess. But yeah, uh, but but there are situations where effective care it's it just gets done. Screening is a special case, and I completely agree with Margaret here that that is a place where uh, decision aids have a real strong place. And there's plenty of time to consider the information about the pros and cons of entering a screening service. So I I agree with that. Um, What was the other element of your question? Well, I was just interested to know whether there's any way we can take an evidence-based approach to to try to understand the barriers. Should I say that again? I was just interested to know whether there was an evidence base that could help us try to understand the barriers and, and seek a way forward. Actually, there, there's already quite a lot of published evidence about the barriers to implementation of this approach or of the tools. Um, Angela's mentioned quite a few of the recurring themes. We already do it. Well, actually, when you look, it doesn't happen. Um, patients don't want it or patients couldn't do it. Well, we actually know that that's not true. It depends how you do it, um, but it's possible to be done. This issue of time, Muir has mentioned a way out of that, which is to send things out in advance so that people prepare themselves well and actually catalyze the conversation so that you 
um, give people appropriate levels of information to consider with their family and friends outside the face-to-face encounter. And it's a common experience for us that when people become aware of a difficult choice, they need more time to deliberate about what's best for them. And there are only a very few situations in medicine where a decision is that urgent that it has to be done today, um, actually. What's more interesting in terms of implementation are the system issues, the rewards and where things fit into pathways. In Seattle, for example, as soon as a referral letter comes in now, the decision aid goes out in the post to the patient where it's appropriate. So you automate the delivery of the information in the organizational system so that nobody has to remember to do it, it just happens. And and I think the other um, key issue in terms of system would be to reward the behavior. The, the delivery, if you like, at the outset of patients who have a good understanding of the choices could and should be measured. And we've seen in the primary care contract, the quality outcomes framework has changed behavior radically. Yes, it, it had 30% of the um, salary attributed to it, but we know that finance systems can actually work with 10% of the value attributed to rewards. Just a tiny shift in terms of what is measured could shift practice dramatically, I think. We know that fully informed patients often opt for less care. Is there a risk that shared decision-making will be seen by some as a way to drive down the cost of care rather than to realise this vision of patients and doctors as co-producers of health? Um, Yes, I think there is a risk that it will be seen in that way. Um, uh, What is absolutely crucial is that... um, the information that patients are given is unbiased and is a true reflection of the evidence. Um, It would be a disaster if if, um, shared decision-making was seen as a way of persuading people that they don't need treatment um, and not telling them about effective treatments. Um, The fact that it does drive down, it certainly drives down utilisation. I don't think we know enough yet about costs. We know that it has done in some cases, but um, is that patients are often given a very over-optimistic uh, account of what treatment can achieve and they're not told about the downsides. Um, and so, you know, if you're um, considering having a knee replacement because you've got osteoarthritis, um, you really do need to know about how long it'll take to recover. You probably also need to know that some of the... that you're not going to... you're unlikely anyway to have a a total return to function. So, you know, for example, if you're a Muslim and who wants to kneel to pray five times a day, you may not be able to do that after your knee replacement. Now, it's crucial that you know that because you do have a tricky decision to make. Um, so, so, and and when people do know that, a proportion tend not to want the invasive and indeed expensive treatment. Um, and that's good news for the health service. But this is not really about that. This is about uh, what we see, I think, as an ethical imperative, that actually uh, doing things to people without them understanding the consequences is unethical, and so it shouldn't be done. Oh, Collins. Yeah, I think there's another associated risk, which is that, you know, under the, a time of enormous cost pressure, um, uh, at the level of trusts, uh, purchasers and providers, decision aids are seen as the answer. And I think we all agree that decision aids are a part of the answer, but it is much more about structures, processes and the conversations that take place and the attitudes of clinicians that drive those conversations. I mean, there is a piece of research from Judy Hibbard 
that shows that if we ask a, a where she asked a team, a group of doctors to score for importance, how important it was that patients actively seek information. And the score was less than six out of ten for doctors. Margaret McCartney, why, why might that be? <laughs> well, I think there's a huge risk that you actually magnify inequalities through um, placing such huge emphasis on patient-led decision-making. And um, I think that with the best intention, you can send out a lot of written information and you will bias against people who are not as literate, not as able, not as capable. And um, I think that these are the kind of people... I mean, the other strand to this is that I think doctors want to be advocates for their patients they want their patient to get the treatment that's best for them that they want and they understand and they're happy with and I see that as my job I don't see that as something that can be franchised out to a paper trail and um, that this is what I'm existing for this is my this is the core of my work um, and I'm concerned that by disenfranchising that from the core of what I do will make actually health decision making inequitable to people who would actually stand to benefit from it the most and it's time that I need if I had a bit more time with everyone and the other problem is that my day is not straight I can be diverted with one emergency or disaster thing that happens in the morning that will affect the entire flow for the rest of my day and none of that is factored in I think when people look at what I'm doing from the outside I don't see people in isolation everything that happens in a day happens in the same day Things you, you don't have this fantastic um, sort of protected time that you might dream about, that you have time to sit down and discuss everything. It doesn't ever happen quite like that. And I'm very worried that um, what would be a normal course of decision making, quite often you wouldn't make a decision there and then you would make it over a course of several appointments, that that could become um, sort of concentrated down to something almost that seems to be a cost measure rather than a professional measure. Angela Coulter. Yeah, I think those are real concerns, but I think it's important um, not to run away with the fact, as I I tried to argue before, that this is in fact something that is only going to benefit uh, advantaged literate people. In fact, um, many of the best uh, decision aids or decision support tools are are videos, not not, no question of having to read reams and reams of written material. Um, I heard a lovely example uh, the other day when I was in Washington um, of uh, um, a, a study that was done uh, with patients who were elderly and who were facing um, the need to make advanced directives or inv- advanced decisions about what might happen uh, towards the end of life when they uh, may be um, suffering from dementia. Um, and the the clinician researcher who led this study devised short, very short, I think there were only about two minutes, videos um, showing people what it was like um, for to experience dementia and the impact on the, the family. Um, and the, they, they then uh, they did a trial. They stratified the participants into by literacy level. And the people who gained most from this were the ones in the lowest literacy group. They actually found it enormously helpful to see the video and they were much better able to make an advanced care plan um, and to express what they wanted to happen uh, when they were uh, towards the end of their life. So I actually think that quite far from increasing inequalities, this is one of the potential tools for reducing them. So Anu, in your work as a junior doctor, can you think of the sort of one or two things apart from more time, which of course we'd all like, that might um, make it easier for you to have the kind of conversations that are being talked about with your patients in in the, in the normal run of your day, I think that relates back to uh, the, the 
the difficulty in implementing something like this across the whole healthcare pathway. Um, so I, I'm I'm very much of the opinion that the we have a devoid, um, a, a gap between primary care and secondary care in Britain. And I think the patient crosses that gap and with them implementing decision aids and that decision needs to cross that gap as well. So, I mean, if I give you the example of, say, um, uh, knee osteoarthritis, um, in the primary care sector, the, the general practitioner can say, well, actually, we have a number of different decisions that, um, that can be made here, a number of different treatment options. We can inject, we can leave it, we can operate. Um, that's a good place to have that conversation. You know, you know they, everything is available to the, the general practitioner there. And then that transition to secondary care is quite a simple one. If you've got a situation, for example, you're talking about breast cancer, where the, you, you're discussing between having a lumpectomy or having a mastectomy, um, that conversation isn't going to happen in primary care. That's going to happen in secondary care. So I suppose that what I'm saying is that's condition-specific. That's very important. Um, and what's important for the patient is that that transition across primary to secondary care happens. That's a structural problem. And at the moment, we don't have that. That's something that would, that would need to be addressed. Um, I think going along with that is this idea of the, the, the partnership of equity in this, in this kind of dialogue. You know, the, the patient and the doctor should have equal equity. If we think of it like a cake, we have two sides of it, two, two, two equal parts. On the patient side, that equity is one part. That's the patient, their decision. They're, they are the one at the forefront. On the doctor's side, that can get quite complicated. We might be talking about primary, secondary and tertiary care involvement, um, in which case they, it throws up issues of accountability. Who takes the responsibility for that patient? Um, and I think those kind of issues need to be ironed out as a junior doctor, what's even more complicating is the fact that the provision of care is under the name of the named consultant in secondary care. So everything that I would do as a junior is reflected as a, as a decision made by them. So there's an added layer of complexity when it comes to me in clinic talking to someone about whether or not they should have their hip done. Alf Collins. It's just a uh, just thinking about secondary care, hun, and uh, you know, thinking about the complexity of some of the larger decision aids. I'm just thinking about the example of, you know, let's say discharge planning. Discharge planning is usually you're going home tomorrow. You know, it could be, you know, if we were to think about discharge tomorrow on a scale of 0 to 10, how confident are you in going home tomorrow? And if the person says 7, you know, what led you to say 7? What could we put in place to raise that confidence level to, let's say, level 8? So a very simple, straightforward conversation that is totally co-productive around something as currently now as paternalistic as discharge. We're going to hear in our next roundtable from people speaking more with a patient perspective um, to try to discuss exactly what information they would like to hear, but also from people who create information um, and how we can improve the quality of that information. But for the moment, I'd like to thank Angela Coulter, Glyn Elwin, Alf Collins, Margaret McCartney and Anu Deer for contributing to this roundtable. Thank you very much. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.